Don't miss Sunday night. If you know that God needs to move in this world and worship brings down his presence and intercession breaks the yoke of satanic bondage, there's going to be heavy worship and heavy intercession Sunday night. Seven churches so far are involved with us, and we encourage you to come out for it. There's nothing on that TV. There's nothing there. Just just get up and come, and uh, God will bless you, all right? Well, I got some great questions, and let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your blessing on the house of God. And we pray that, Lord, you will move tonight, and, and Lord, just give us wisdom to walk in your word Clear the cobwebs of confusion. Settle us in the scriptures. And thank you for clarity and wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, notice that Ask Pastor Jeff Part 8. Do you know that we started out, I was going to do one night? <laughs> That's how this has happened. So, all right. Thank you. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good. God bless you. <clears throat> okay. It's not working, Tyler been a while since it didn't work. It's not working. Um, still not working. Check the side. Check the side. There it goes. Glory to God. <clears throat> now, little, little boy, little boy came up to me um, last Wednesday night and he said, Pastor Jeff, I have a question. And he asked me this question and I said, listen, I want to answer that in front of the whole church. So you go and fill out the, the uh, Ask Pastor Jeff. He ran straight out there and wrote it down. So I want to deal with his first. Are you in here, son, who asked? There he is. All right. I told you I would do it. All right. He, he asked a great question. He said, is there going to be a sky in heaven? I said, why? He said, because I love the sky. Well, let's talk about that. Is there a sky in heaven? Many people have a misconception of what heaven is truly like. Matter of fact, most Christians do. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 gives us a detailed picture of what it calls the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? Catch that phrase. New heaven, new earth. All right. After the events of the end times, the current heavens and earth are going to be done away with and replaced by the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I didn't put it up here, but I think it's 2 Peter chapter 3, somewhere around verse 20. It says, the day of the Lord will come with a great noise, come suddenly. And it says, the heavens will pass away with a noise. The heavens will. And the elements or the earth will melt with a fervent heat. So the day of the Lord is going to come suddenly, unexpectedly, unannounced, and when it does, something is going to happen to the entire creation of God. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, the heavens, what you see above, are going to pass away with a great noise. And then the earth and everything in it, all the evil, wicked works that have gathered in the earth are going to be burned up. The earth is going to melt with a fervent heat. I believe that's God's way of cleansing everything. 
Because is our planet filled with wicked works or what? And, and how many of you know of a wicked work that you would like to see burned up? Okay, God's going to burn it all up. And so keep that in mind when we read this, that there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth after the old things have passed away. Look what John writes about the new heaven. He says in Revelations 20, 21, Then I saw a, what everyone? New heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had what? Passed away. And there was no longer any ocean, no more sea. So this is a radical renovation that's going to happen. He said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now watch this, coming down out of heaven from God. The new Jerusalem right now is in heaven. But when Christ comes to set up his kingdom, the new Jerusalem is going to be lowered onto a renewed, renovated earth. And look what he says, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them just like he did in Eden. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And I preach this at every funeral I preach. I, I preach this verse. Read it with me. It's great. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And I usually add or heart disease or cancer or headaches. All of that for the old order of things has passed away. And then verse five, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making how much new? Everything. New heavens, new earth, everything is going to be made new. Then he said to John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are the truth. So the eternal dwelling place of believers will be the new earth. Right here. The new earth is the heaven on which we will spend eternity. It is the new earth where the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, will be located. But there won't be any pollution, no smog, no sin, no devil, no flesh. It'll all be new. It is on the new earth that the pearly gates and the streets of gold are going to be. Heaven, the new earth, is a physical place where we will dwell with glorified physical bodies. You're going to have a glorified body. You're going to get a glorified body like Jesus had who could eat fish but then walk through a closed door. A glorified body. You can, you can cancel your membership to curves. You can quit worrying about dieting. None of that's going to be an issue anymore. A glorified body. Amen. And that is at the core of the promise of the Christian faith. Resurrection with a glorified body. The concept that heaven is out there in the cloud somewhere is not biblical. The concept that we're going to be spirits floating around in heaven is also unbiblical. Also, angels playing harps with wings, that's unbiblical. Uh, the heaven that believers will experience will be a new and perfect planet on which we will dwell. 
Amen. So God's going to make all this new. All of this is going to receive a touch from the living God when Christ comes. It's going to be so radical when he returns. The new earth is going to be free of sin, evil, sickness, suffering, and death. It'll likely be similar to our current earth or perhaps even a recreation of our current earth, but without the curse of sin. Now, what about the new heavens or the sky that he was asking about? It's important to remember that in the ancient mind, heavens referred to the skies and outer space as well as the realm in which God dwells. They would just say the heavens, and that included the sky, the stars, the planets, everything. So when Revelation 21 verse 1 talks about the new heavens, it's likely indicating that the entire universe is going to be recreated, new earth, new skies, a new outer space. He's going to have to. Do you know that there's so much junk floating around in earth's atmosphere? We've already polluted space. All of that is going to be burned up. It seems as if the sky will be recreated as well to give everything in the universe a fresh start. So how'd I do, friend? That okay? All right, he gave me thumbs up. Okay. Now, here we go. I'm, I go from one subject to a totally different realm, and here's, here's a question I got. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist who insists that the Sabbath should be observed on Saturday. They, now that's most but not all, seem to worship the day and the fourth commandment. They make a a very, very strong issue of the fourth commandment on keeping the Sabbath. So how are we, this person asked me, to keep the Sabbath? What is the deal with the Sabbath? What does the word really say? All right, let me answer that. First of all, I just visited a Seventh-day Adventist hospital, and they were so kind and sweet. I'm not slamming any group of people. I deal with, with Bible. And I, and I teach what the Bible says the best of my ability, but I, I'm not slamming anybody because they're so sweet, it, it, just so kind up there, okay? But he, here's the deal about the Sabbath, and you have to go to church on Saturday, and if you don't go to church on Saturday, you're in sin because Saturday is the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, God stated, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. That's Exodus 28 through 10. Now, here's the deal. It was the custom of the Jews to come together on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. Saturday is the last day of the week. Sunday is considered to be the beginning of the week. And cease work and worship God on Saturday. Jesus, you'll find in the Bible, went to the synagogue on Saturday to teach. You can see that in Matthew 12, 9 and John 18, 20, as did the Apostle Paul. So they went into the, the, the synagogue and taught on Saturday. But that's when they were in there. That's when the folks were in there. So that's why they went then. So if in the Old Testament we're commanded to keep the Sabbath, and in the New Testament we see Jews, the Jews and Jesus and the apostles doing the same thing, then why are we worshiping on Sunday? Seventh-day Adventists want to know. First of all, of the Ten Commandments listed in Exodus 20, 
only nine of them were restated in the New Testament. Now, let me give you a little rule of thumb. If you see something forbidden in the Old Testament, but it's not repeated in the New Testament, it likely died in the Old Testament. But if you see something forbidden in the Old Testament, and then it's reiterated in the New Testament, then it's good for you and me. It's true for you and me. For instance, here I go. Homosexuality was forbidden in the Old Testament. It's repeated in the New Testament over and over again. So that truth remains from old through to the new. So it applies to us. But in the Old Testament, it was also forbidden that we would make a garment out of mixed things like wool and nylon. They were forbidden to make garments out of mixed material. But you don't see that in the New Testament. But half of you in here have garments made with many different things. God only knows what, depending on where you bought it. But in the Old Testament, you, you couldn't because God was giving them a, an object lesson that you should not intermingle righteous with the wicked. You should not mix good with bad, strong with weak. But in the New Testament, you don't see anything about don't, don't uh, mix your garments with different materials. It's not there. So you don't have to worry about it. So of the Ten Commandments, nine are repeated in the New Testament, but the one that's not is demanding that we meet only on Saturday. Sure is quiet in here. For instance, um, nine of them were restated in the New Testament, six in Matthew nineteen eighteen dealing with murder, adultery, stealing, false witness, honoring parents, and worshiping God. And Romans 13, 9 deals with coveting. Worshiping God properly covers the first three commandments, but the one that is not reaffirmed was the one about the Sabbath. You don't find it in the New Testament. Instead, Jesus said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. The Old Testament system of law required keeping the Sabbath as part of the, the overall moral, legal, and sacrificial system by which the Jewish people satisfied God's requirements for behavior, government, and forgiveness of sins. It was the law. But the Sabbath was part of the law in that sense. In order to remain in favor with God, you had to also keep the Sabbath. And that's how you remain, that's one of the things you did to remain right with God. This is what we, as God's chosen Jewish people, this is what we do. This is what God told us to observe. So we do it to remain right with him. But guess what? With Jesus' atonement, we no longer are required to keep the law as a means for our justification. We are not justified by our behavior. We are justified by the blood of the Lamb. Are you with me? When God declares you and I righteous, then He also declares us justified. And justified, a good way to remember it is just as if I never did it. Justified. So my justification doesn't come from whether or not I go to church on Saturday or Sunday or Tuesday or Thursday. 
My justification comes from the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Are you with me? When I get to heaven, or when I get to the pearly gates, I don't think that's the way it's going to happen. But when I face God, he's not going to say to me, now before I let you in, did you keep the Sabbath? No, that's not what he's going to say. Here's what he's going to say. Before I let you in, what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? Oh, I put my faith in him years ago, Lord. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But there's going to be people that, well, I kept the Sabbath every week. But what did you do with my son? Because keeping the Sabbath isn't going to get you saved, and it's not going to keep you saved, nor does it justify you. But the blood of the Lamb, putting faith in the blood of the Lamb, is what justifies us. So guess what? The requirements of the law were fulfilled in Jesus. He never sinned. And so God took his righteousness and imputed it to me. And my sin and imputed it to him. So now, I want you to say with me, I have rest from the law. We now have Sabbath continually. You notice where Hebrews talks about entering into his rest? Jesus kept the law for me. So I am justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, let me take a little bit further and prove to you uh, in the New Testament that, that keeping the Sabbath is, is not required. That is, Saturday is the day we observe the Sabbath. Within the New Testament, there's ample evidence that the seventh-day Sabbath is no longer a requirement. Look at what Paul writes. He says, quote, One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in what? Say it with me. His own mind. Now keep that in mind. He goes on. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. The instructions here, follow this church, are that individuals must be convinced in their own minds about which day they observe for the Lord. That's what he said. Let every man be convinced in his own mind. Now, if the seventh-day Sabbath were a requirement, then the choice would not be man's. But it would be God's. And we would just be told. Paul would have told us. Peter would have told us. John would have told us. You keep that Saturday Sabbath in the name of the Lord. But they didn't, and neither did Jesus. Is that clear? So, in love, I say to my Seventh-day Adventist friends, read what I just read. Look at the verse that I just quoted. It's not something we need to be legalistic about. Now, let me just close with this on the Sabbath. Everybody should take a day off, a day of rest. Uh, God worked six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Now, do you think God needed to rest? God didn't need to rest. God never depletes. God never gets tired. But why did he do it? To give you and I an example, that the creation he made needs to rest. 
So you ought to take, if you're working seven days a week, pray that God gets you out of that somehow. There ought to be a day you wake up and open up your Bible and spend some time in it and spend some time in prayer and just just do basically nothing and rest. The Bible says, come apart for a little while and rest, said Jesus. And so I like to say, come apart before you come apart. Okay? Now, to me, the verse I just read to you is very sufficient to answer the question beyond doubt. Now, here's the next question. Why was Jesus beaten to be unrecognizable? Why the extent of injury? Why not just the stripes, the sacrifice, the verbal mocking? Why did he have to be beaten so badly? What was the point of it? Why a crown of thorns? Why beaten beyond recognition? Why truly tortured? That was emailed to me. And this person was really feeling, uh, um, I want to say irritation, but that's not the best word, perplexity and hurt about this. Why, why did he suffer so much? You know, Isaiah 52, 14 is one of the places where his suffering was predicted centuries before he arrived. Isaiah writes, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form was marred beyond human likeness. Let me just tell you what that is. We couldn't even tell he was human. He was beaten so badly, we couldn't even tell what he was, much less who he was. Tough stuff. Why? Well, some think that Jesus' physical torture was part of him being punished for our sins in our place. And I think to some extent that's probably the case. But I I, I see something more. At the same time, the torture that Jesus underwent speaks more of the hatred, the cruelty of humanity than it does of God's punishment for sin. See, Jesus invaded earth. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was an invasion it was a heavenly invasion of planet Earth that was under siege by a horrific, horrible enemy called Satan. Not a little devil running around in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork and horns. No, no, this is a monster. A monster. And Jesus invaded planet Earth to redeem and to deliver and to undo the power of that monster. So... Of course, before he ever came, but particularly once he came, the war was on. That's why the command was given that all the male children two years old and under would be killed in Bethlehem. There was an immediate attempt on the part of the devil to take Jesus out before he got started. Kill, steal, destroy, stop him. Stop this. It was an order that went throughout hell. Stop him. I think that when Jesus had been arrested and was on his way to the cross, the fury of Satan moving through these people, Roman guards, Roman army, the Jewish people who demanded his execution. His blood be on our heads. Oh, what a terrible thing to say and how dangerous. 
So I think you see the fury and the cruelty and the depravity of man and hell in how Jesus was treated. But now this question came to me this way. Why did God allow it? Why did God, how could God sit by and let that happen to his only son? Well, I want you to remember something. Jesus allowed this to take place, folks. Because when they say, how could God allow that? Hey, Jesus was God. Please keep that in mind. God wasn't saying, well, I'm just going to let my son go through literal hell uh, against his will. I'm just going to let him be pulverized. No, folks, Jesus allowed it because Jesus was God. Look at what he said. He said, don't you know that I can ask my father? And he will instantly provide more than a dozen armies of angels to help me, to get me out of here. All he had to do at any point in any of this beating and this abuse, all he had to do is look up and say, okay, I'm done. And angels would have intervened and whisked him out of there. That's by his own mouth. So... Yeah, God allowed it, but not just the Heavenly Father, but God the Son allowed it. I don't know why it was so severe, but somehow all of this was necessary for our atonement. See, to me, if you reject Christ, His love, the message of the gospel, and in light of what He did, in light of the suffering He underwent, for our forgiveness and redemption. If, if you reject that and you face the Father having rejected that with the Son having gone through what He did on your behalf, what a judgment that will be. What a judgment that will be. Now let me just move on to the last question I want to deal with tonight. What is the difference between the God of Islam and the God of the Bible? Are Christianity and Islam compatible? Now, there is a huge difference, folks. And and I want to deal with this one last because there is so much confusion out there in our culture. I don't understand our culture fully because there are people standing behind things and I can't fathom why they're standing behind it. Uh, You know, amening things. I can't imagine how they're doing it. So I I told myself today, I'm going to shoot straight tonight. And unfiltered, undiluted, um, I'm just going to tell you the truth about these two religions. And I hope I don't offend you because I'm going to talk about some things a little bit graphic. Okay? But here we go. Let's compare the two religions. Islam began in 622 A.D., The name Islam means submission. That ought to give you pause right there. The name Islam means submission. The stated goal of Islam is total world domination under the rule of Sharia law. And that's in the Quran. That is their goal. That is their intent. Now, as I go through this, I'm going to anticipate a couple of thoughts in your mind. 
Some of you are going to be going, why, Pastor Jeff, come on. I know some, some real peace-loving Muslims, and they don't agree with all of this. And come on, you can't just make these blanket statements. I'm going to take you straight to the Quran, straight to their book. And while there might be what we might call moderate Muslims, like there's moderate Christians, um, taken as a whole, Islam and the intent of Islam is world domination. And, and that's, that's their stated goal. Now, in the Quran, here you go. Surah 61, verse 9 reads, He it is who has sent his messenger Muhammad with guidance and the religion of truth to make it victorious over all other religions, even though the infidels, and an infidel is you and me, non-Muslims, that's an infidel. So to a committed Muslim, you are an infidel. Hate it. I'm not telling you to hate that. I'm reading the rest of it. It says that anybody who is against the message of Islam is to be hated. Any other religion is hated because it's a competitor. And Islam has no room for competitors. So there you have the intent and the motivation of Islam, world domination. That is their intent. And and if you think that that's not still alive and well, it's more alive and well as I speak to you right now than it has been in a long time. Now, you know the founder of Islam is Muhammad. Muhammad was born around 570 A.D. in Mecca in what we would call today modern Saudi Arabia. When he was 40 years old, Muhammad claimed to having received many visitations and revelations from the angel Gabriel. These visitations continued until his death in 632 A.D. Now, it is these revelations that were gathered together and written down by followers of Muhammad and are now known as the Quran. I've got one at home. I've, I've leafed through it. I haven't read the whole thing cover to cover, but I've leafed through much of it. The Quran. Now, when Muhammad first started preaching these so-called revelations from Gabriel, uh, he encountered resistance in Mecca, which eventually forced him to move to another town called Medina. Now, his influence grew in Medina in spite of his rejection in, also in Medina by both Jews and Christians who didn't really receive his word, his so-called prophecies. So it's in Medina where Muhammad established the first Islamic state. And he became both the religious and political ruler. He was the head duck. He was the leader, politically and spiritually, in Medina. Now, as time went on, it was here that Muhammad turned from trying to persuade with words to taking over by the power of the sword. In 630 A.D., he led his followers to conquer Mecca, his birthplace. And they conquered it by the sword. They conquered it by force. After his death, the Muslims continued to conquer new territories. Here's a few of them. Arabia and beyond by violent force. When they conquered a people, they gave them three options. And you'll recognize these options if you've been in the news at all lately. Convert to Islam, pay a special tax, or die. Those are the options. You convert, 
you pay our tax or we kill you. This is the religion of peace we're talking about. I'm just reading you facts. This is exactly what Iraqi Christians right now and other faiths have been told by the Islamic terrorist group ISIS today. Hence, there are right now, as we speak, 40,000 Yazidis, which is an ancient pre-Islamic sect. So in other words, they're not Islamic. These people, 40,000, are now trapped on an Iraqi mountaintop slowly dying from dehydration and starvation because ISIS, Islamic State, is what that stands for, will not let food or water get to them. And they're dying. There's things that I could say. It'd be too graphic. All you got to do is go read the news, what's happening, and what is being done in the name of Allah and Islam. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and be angry at Islamic people or attack Islamic people. Christians don't do that. But I want you informed. I want the truth because you're not going to get the truth from ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. So they're dying right now. They're on a mountaintop dying. And what are we doing? The, The international community is sitting around twiddling its thumbs wondering, oh, gee, what can we do to help them? Days ago, There should have been military intervention against ISIS, wiping them out and saving those people. So, you know, I got a lot of questions, but how is it a concerted international military response hasn't been executed to save them? I don't get it. I just don't get it. Beautiful little children, mothers, holding them. Today I read cutting themselves so the children can drink the blood so they can have something to drink because there's no water. Who won't let it to them? Who won't let it get to them? Radical Islam. Back to Muhammad. Soon after Muhammad's death, Islam spread to the whole Arabian Peninsula through large sections of North Africa along with large parts of Asia and Indonesia. And while there are people who call themselves Muslims that are kind and peaceful, and there are, there are, the effects, watch this now, follow me carefully, the effects of the teachings of Islam for those who are fully devoted followers of Allah, Muhammad, and the Quran is something very different than a religion of peace and love. Now, I'm just going to read to you out of the Quran because this isn't Jeff's opinion. I wish it weren't true. For instance, those who sell out to Islam do indeed display a willingness to sacrifice their lives in the cause of Islam and for Allah, their God. But that's where the comparison to Christianity ends. The radical Muslim sacrifices his life or her life not to share the love of Allah but to wage jihad, holy war. That's what they're willing to give their lives for, for the cause of Allah and to kill those who do not believe in Allah. They do this in direct obedience to the teachings of the Quran. We got to understand that. Um, That Quran commands them to fight until religion is only for Allah. 
Now, let me give you some examples from the Quran. Quran chapter 8, verse 39. And fight with them until there is no more persecution and religion should be only for Allah. Notice, fight, do war, shed blood for the cause of Allah. Now, let me give you a comparison of Jesus. Jesus told Peter, put away your sword. For he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Islam says, pick up your sword. For that's how we advance our cause. Jesus said, put away your sword. That's how we advance our cause. And Jesus told Pontius Pilate, I love this. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. In other words, Pilate, we are not uh, fighters. We are not combative warriors. Because my kingdom is not of this earth. It's from another world. It's the kingdom of God. So we don't do things that way. Do you see the difference? Quran chapter 9 verse 5 says, Fight and kill the disbelievers wherever you find them. Take them captive, harass them, lie in wait, and ambush them using every stratagem of war. That's out of the Quran. So I'm an impressionable young Muslim man or woman, and I read these things, and what am I to believe? What am I to think? What am I to do? How am I to view life and my purpose? Especially when it's considered their holy, divine, God-given, non-negotiable book. Quran 9.14. Again, fight them. And Allah will punish them by your hands. Lay them low and cover them with shame. He, Allah, will help you. And of particular relevance to what we're seeing happening around the world today, the Quran commands the followers of Muhammad to especially focus on Jews and Christians. Now, church, key into me here, because right now, Around the world, Christians, our brethren, our brothers, our sisters, washed in the blood of the Lamb, redeemed by Christ, are being murdered, martyred, killed, simply because they're Christian and not Muslim by radical Islamists. Again, I know not every Muslim would do that. But if you take even a small percentage of the existing Muslims on the planet, a small, tiny percentage radicalized, which they are. There is a small percentage at least radicalized. You're talking about millions. Quran 476. Oh, you who believe, do not take the Jews and Christians for friends. They are friends of each other. And whoever among you takes them for a friend, then surely he's one of them. Surely Allah does not guide the unjust people. May Allah destroy them. Who's the them? Jews and Christians. May Allah destroy them. Allah destroy them. And they read, this is their book. Now I know it has a lot of other things in it, but hey, but these are there as well. Muslims are taught that if they die in the cause of Allah, 
they will immediately receive forgiveness and receive a great reward in heaven. Look at Quran chapter 4, verse 74. Whoso fighteth in the way of Allah, be he slain or be he victorious on him, we will bestow a vast reward. So I'm told if I go kill a Jewish person, kill a Christian person, or, or, or die as a martyr in the cause of Allah, I'm going to go into a vast reward. Is that an incentive? There's no question that passages like these were firmly entrenched in the minds of the terrorists that flew the jets into the trade towers. Or the Fort Hood shooter who killed 13 people and wounded 30 more crying, Allah Akbar, which means Allah is the greatest. That's what it means. Of course, our government decided to call that workplace violence. No, it was a terrorist attack. Now, passages like these are surely also driving the Islamic radicals who are massacring thousands of Christians and Jews around the world today. Now, I want to tell you some things. Watch this. Reported cases of Christians killed for their faith worldwide doubled in 2013 from the year before. Doubled from 2012-2013. Christian martyrs doubled, and that's only the ones recorded. With Syria accounting for more than the whole global total in 2012. One study says, and I found this very interesting, that from AD 30 to the year 2000, 70 million Christians died as martyrs. Wow, 70 million. But the majority of those martyrs were not killed in ancient times. There were 45 million Christian martyrs in the 20th century. 20th century is one of the bloodiest centuries. Well, probably the bloodiest century in the history of man, the 20th. In the 20th century, the primary murderers of Christians were communist regimes like the Soviet Union, Red China, places like that. But one United States watchdog group now reports that increasing violence against Christians is coming at the hands of radical Muslims who are the main source of persecution in 36 countries on the watchdogs list. Islamist extremism is the worst persecutor of the worldwide church, the report went on to say. Pope Francis said recently, quote, the persecution of Christians today is even more virulent than in the first centuries of the church. And there are more Christian martyrs today than in that era. And the Pope said that just recently. The atrocities against Christians taking place in Iraq, Egypt, Africa, China, North Korea, and other countries of the world at the hands of inhuman Islamic terrorists and others, like in North Korea, it's just a a nutty leader, are being largely ignored. And that's why I want to teach on this. I, I got a question. Why aren't pastors all over America preaching about this? I don't understand it. Because our, our brethren are being killed, slaughtered, massacred by radical Islam primarily, primarily. 
Our tragically biased, left-leaning, agenda-driven media breaks speed records to cover the shooting death of one teenager in St. Louis, as sad and bad as that was. Yet they respond with a yawn to the wholesale torture and massacre of men, women, and children throughout the world simply because they are Christian. If we're going to freak out in America over the murder of one teenager, what about the slaughter of hundreds and thousands of teenagers because they're Christian? I ask you, why won't the media, the supposed watchdogs of society, do a little investigating in the true contents of the Quran? Why can't they go dig out what I did? Aren't they supposed to be investigators? You know, my, my bachelor's degree, uh, I, my minor was journalism. And, and we were taught in journalism that we were the watchdogs of the government. That, that we kept them clean. That we, we kept them doing things right. That, that, that if they did wrong, we were to report on it and expose them because it kept them in line. Well, can I tell you today, journalism, as I was taught it, is dead. It's just dead. Now... It's agenda-driven, left-leaning-driven, and, and, and they're guilty really as much on what they don't report on as what they do. Why aren't these things talked about? How can you let a massacre like this and massacres all over the world happen without covering it and exposing it and demanding an answer? Why won't they tell the truth about the dark side of Islam? Now, here's what you're saying. You're, well, Pastor Jeff... The Christians were involved in the Crusades, and the Christians were involved in the Inquisition. So don't tell me that you're all, your Christianity is all righteous and it's all uh, Islam that's done these things. Let me tell you something. Even the scuttlebutt about the Crusades is misrepresented. It's misrepresented. Um, in around 633 A.D., Muslims took over Jerusalem. Okay? And for the next few centuries, they ruled Jerusalem. Muslims did. Remember when Jesus talked about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled? Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So that's what's happened. In 633 AD, the Muslims took Jerusalem. They ruled it for centuries. They ruled it right up into the late 11th century. Then around, um, trying to remember here, around 10 63 or so, 1065, the Muslim Turks took over Jerusalem. And when they did, 3,000 Christians were slaughtered by them. For the next 30 years, from around 1065 to 1095, Christians were not allowed, as they had been all those centuries, to visit the holy places. They were blocked out of them. They were resisted. They were hated. They were persecuted. And like I said, 3,000 of them were killed when the Muslim Turks took it in 1065. So in 1095, Pope Urban II received a desperate cry for help from the Middle East. Please send help to deliver us from this oppression that we can get back our city and get back our places of worship and he then made a speech and raised up the first army and sent off the first crusade to give Jerusalem back and to answer the persecution of Christians. 
So it was a defensive move. It wasn't a bunch of Christians going, well, let's just go kill people. It was defensive. You get in a debate with people these days, well, y'all did the Crusades, y'all did the Inquisition. True, the Inquisition was wrong, and, and there were parts of the Crusades where certainly unnecessary killing happened. But let me make a distinction before I close tonight. When a Christian turns to violence to further a belief or to further Christianity, he is going directly against the teachings of our founder. That's the distinction. Put away your sword. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. So when a Christian goes and says, well, I'm just sick and tired of these crazy people running things. I'm just going to go kill somebody and, and, and force people, like with the Inquisition, to believe the way I do. When they do that, they have forsaken the teachings of our founder, Jesus Christ. But when a Muslim kills people to further their religion, they're doing exactly what their founder told them to. That's the difference. I wonder why the media is so quick to stand with the murderous terrorist group Hamas rather than the self-defending land of Israel. Now, this is me getting mixed in here. I just get mad every day at some time during the day. I do. I'm being honest with you. I don't understand the media. They've gotten rich off of capitalism. They've gotten rich off of the blessings of America. Their children are blessed. They're blessed. They live in big homes, have fat paychecks. They have everything that America has given to them, and yet they side with people that want to destroy America. So isn't it time Christians everywhere started turning off ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, and other brazenly left-leaning so-called news organizations and make them pay a ratings price for their bias and their dishonesty? Boy, Pastor, you came loaded for bear tonight. Hey, this is where I live. I, I live with this. All they understand is money, so make them feel it where it hurts. And isn't it time Christians everywhere began demanding that these atrocities against Christians throughout the world be brought into the light of public disclosure and that harsh and decisive action be taken against their persecutors? And isn't it time that Western Christians began to cry out to God on behalf of our brethren suffering such atrocities throughout the world? Let's stand together, can we? So I think you can see with me that the God of Allah and the God of the Christian faith are totally diametrically opposed. And I could have gone into so much more, but time wouldn't permit. And please take what I was saying tonight in the spirit in which it was intended. I don't hate anybody, but there are beliefs that I hate because they destroy people. And I do hate the devil. I do. I hate the devil, <clears throat> but I love people. And you know what? If I met a Muslim, I would love the Muslim. I'm not against, I, I don't hate anybody, but folks, we need to know the truth, don't we? Let's lift our hands to God. Say, Lord, there's persecution throughout the world. And we come to you in Jesus name right now. We come to you with those 40,000 people trapped on the top of a mountain. 
they can't take care of their children. They're watching their children die. They're dying. They have no food and they have not a drop of water. What a terrible, terrible predicament they're in. We pray for the Coptic Christians of Egypt who have been slaughtered and massacred. We pray for the Christians in North Korea that have been slaughtered and massacred and imprisoned and tortured by that wicked regime. We pray, Lord, for the persecuted Christians of Russia and communist China. Lord, right now there are millions of our brethren throughout the world that don't know what they're going to do when they wake up tomorrow morning, that don't have food, that are in jail for simply confessing your name. And Lord, if we think that we're somehow going to dodge this in the ultimate scheme of things, Lord, I think we're wrong. If we don't take take a stand, Lord, and stop this, then history says it will come here. So, Lord, we ask you in Jesus' name, help our brethren. Help our brethren, brothers, our sisters. Help the children. Lord, send relief. Send help. And whatever we can do, Lord, show us, and we will do it. God, in Jesus' name, be with our suffering brethren right now. We ask you to move on world leaders, even against their own nature and their own ideology, to move and to help these people. We ask you to send your grace, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, the Son of God, send revival, Lord. And we start praying tonight and we pray through Sunday night. We're going to intercede Sunday night and we're going to pound heaven. We're going to, we're going to come boldly to the throne of grace. That God will break through on this dark hour and send help. We ask you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Give the Lord a hand.